0: From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, big data in ophthalmology.
1: You're bound to find some that are statistically significant and have impressive p-values, but they may not actually be truly clinically correct.
0: First this. I travel a lot. It's one of the perks of the work I do. As fantastic as Hangzhou or Jaipur or Barcelona are, I'm always amazed at how beautiful my own country is. Nowhere is this more in evidence than in Park City, Utah. Words truly fail. That's why I'm so happy that iWorld holds its surgical summit in Park City. Join me in this collegial, informal, and highly educational event in one of the most beautiful places on earth. Go to surgicalsummit.iworld.org. That's surgical summit, one word, iWorld.org. I'll see you on the slopes. The hallmark of our modern age is the increasing rate at which the world changes. I don't just mean that there are significant changes occurring in our lifetime, of that there is no doubt, but that the pace at which these tectonic shifts occur is itself increasing. The internet has changed all our lives, and its adoption seemed unbelievably fast for those of us who lived through it. The fact that we now all carry around pocket computers that we hilariously call phones occurred at an even faster rate. But there is an insidious and much more profound change that has occurred in just the last few years. This is the adoption of the tools of big data and machine learning, the combination of which have the power to predict and uncover things that were heretofore impractical or impossible. Stories abound of women receiving advertisements for diapers before they knew they were pregnant, and of offers for device components before the owners knew that the devices were broken. Certainly, we can put these tools to work for us in ophthalmology, to discover the relation between pathologies and uncover treatments and methods that will benefit our patients. But big data comes with caveats, the most important of which have to do with the fidelity of data sources. John Thompson, my guest today, wrote an editorial in ophthalmology critiquing data science in ophthalmology, and I'm happy to have him as my guest today. Every time I I hear someone mention big data, I think of the scene in The Graduate in which Dustin Hoffman is advised that the future lay in in plastics. Universities are developing curricula in in big data, and business school graduates are advertising their big data acumen. This begs the question, what, what is big data?
1: Well, I'm not aware of a specific definition, but typically when we're talking about clinical studies that we deal with, we're talking about hundreds of patients if it's a big study in the past. And now that we have access to electronic records, typically we're talking about thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of patients, depending upon the particular data source. So I think we use the big data moniker when we're talking about large data sets, uh, much larger than is typically done in clinical studies, uh, say, uh, for a drug approval or a multi-center study about an outcome in people with diabetic retinopathy. Uh, those used to be our big studies, which involved hundreds of patients.
0: So then, let let me sort of split hairs here, because it's going to help me. There, there have always been large clinical studies that have involved thousands, or sometimes even tens of thousands of subjects. These studies are are studies with a lot of data. Does does this constitute big data?
1: And if not, what is the distinction? Well, I think that. There have been relatively few studies in ophthalmology that have involved thousands of patients. There have been a few, but they're relatively few and far between. And those studies have typically been done in a situation where you had a particular question. It was a multi-center randomized clinical trial. And you had a a particular question that you were trying to answer. And, of course, the study size depends upon what differences you expect uh, between the two groups. But these studies were very carefully done. They're expensive studies done with rigorous protocols in terms of inclusion and exclusion criteria, and they're usually pretty good at answering a question such as, you know, is treatment A more effective than treatment B, or is treatment A effective at all uh, compared to placebo? And so those traditionally have been our sources of clinical insights, and they've established a lot of the things that we do in ophthalmology in terms of the um, paradigms of clinical treatment for a variety of disorders. And with the big data studies now that involve EHR, we have to recognize that the quality of the data is not as good. These are not studies where you have rigorous inclusion criteria, they're not studies where the data is always clean. They're typically coming from many different electronic health records or perhaps a registry um, that uh, exists in a public health organization. And so the the data quality is not of the same quality. And I think we have to be very careful when we look at these big data studies to understand um, that the quality is not as uh, the same. And so... I think that we need to make this distinction, and and something that the reader has to do is uh, to look at this carefully and uh, to say, you know, where did this data come from? Is this a multi-center randomized clinical trial with rigorous criteria and study monitors that are carefully looking at the data, or is this something where the data has been collected from a bunch of disparate sources and put together in, in a big data set?
0: Yeah, and this is something that that um, I that, that that I want to circle back to later too. So let let me just sort of lay a little bit more more groundwork here. If big data sets are employed in studies, what sort of statistical testing or, or mathematical modeling is done to produce results?
1: Well, you know, this the statisticians certainly have to look carefully at the data because when you have large data sets, it's possible to come up with ridiculously impressive p-values and uh, you can have the problem of of p-hacking where you have let's say a large data set and you start asking a bunch of different questions of that data set and let's say you ask a hundred different questions and you find that you know ten of those questions yield or let's say five of the questions yield statistically significant results well you've actually, all you've done in that is just determined a P less than 0.05, so technically those five questions that yielded a statistically significant result would have done so by chance. Now, if you do 100 data tests like that, truthfully, it doesn't always work out where 5% end up being uh, statistically significant, but what I'm saying is that by random chance alone that you will have statistical significance. And so if you ask, look at a lot of different variables, you're bound to find some that are statistically significant and have impressive p-values, but they may not actually be truly uh, clinically uh, correct in the sense that they may have occurred by chance alone. And so again, in these randomized multicenter studies that are done, um, you know typically for by pharmaceutical companies and also sponsored by the NIH, you have typically one question or a couple of questions which are answered which are asked prospectively and so you, what you 're saying is this is the particular thing that we 're looking at, and we 're going to do this study to try to answer this question and that 's a very different scenario than these big data studies that are are uh, come from the electronic health records, where the data is not looked at prospectively uh, somebody's looking at retrospective data yeah and,
0: and so on on that same theme um the the data that are gathered in electronic health records are are entered by physicians with motivations that have nothing to do with with studies. the motivations are. Documentation, or sometimes uh, it, it, it's it's coding to make sure that you know that the that the billing processes uh, run run properly. Um, if if these data sets are indeed gathered for these other reasons, do they have the sort of fidelity that's required to do post hoc clinical studies?
1: They certainly don't have the same degree of fidelity. I think that they can yield useful information. I'm certainly not opposed to big data and using big data because it gives us access to information that we otherwise could not otherwise obtain uh, because it would be too expensive to try to gain uh, access to this data. But I think that it's important to understand that the quality of the data does vary uh, between these studies. And uh, in the case of the IRIS registry, you have data that's being accessed from a variety of different electronic health records that have different ways of storing the data, even different ways of storing visual acuities. And the IRIS registry has to convert, essentially, this data uh, into a single data set by extracting data from all these various electronic health record programs. And I think that there probably are problems with extracting that data accurately. In some electronic health programs, it's probably better to extract the data. And we've seen this with some of the quality data and some of the uh, electronic uh, health record programs. It's harder to extract the data. And so I think that we have to always be a bit circumspect about where is the data coming from. And you are absolutely correct that the Electronic health records really exist primarily for purposes of uh, billing, justifying particular billing codes and also providing documentation, which is required uh, by the CMS and by insurers. And uh, we have to make certain that the treatments that we're doing are covered. And uh, sometimes there's a tendency to pick a diagnosis that's a covered diagnosis for a particular intervention. Um, rather than one that wouldn't be covered. And so that leads to data muddiness. uh, And it means that the data is not completely accurate. And I think that we have to always remember that the gold standard for clinical studies are these prospective studies where you have data which is very carefully uh, collected for a single purpose. You have uh, study monitors that come by and check the accuracy of the data against the electronic or the paper health records and this is the closest we come to perfect data and these registry studies don't have perfect data they do give us valuable insights into certain things but the data is not nearly as clean
0: you mentioned that the iris registry what what are some of the uh, sources of of big data that might be employed in in ophthalmology for a big data study?
1: Well, um, the IRIS registry is far and away the largest, and I think it's um, wonderful that the American Academy of Ophthalmology has devoted the resources uh, to put this together because this is an arduous task and it's expensive to create data transfer uh, programs for these various EHR um, studies and so i I think that this is certainly a model that we can use but there are other potential sources of data particularly in some of the european countries that have national health systems they have registries that involve every patient uh, essentially in that particular country especially in some of the scandinavian countries and and those data sets Uh, I think, are good because there's a single electronic health record program that the data is coming from, and they know that they have virtually all patients uh, that are seen in a particular population with the IRIS registry because it's voluntary. Um, We have certainly a large number of patients uh, in the IRIS registry, and the percentage of ophthalmologists that participate is going up, but last I heard about it, it was in the 60 to 70 percent range. Uh, and at the time that these two studies were done from the IRIS registry, that is uh, mentioned in the ophthalmology uh, editorial, uh, it was less than 50 percent at that point. So when you have a group of patients that you're not capturing data from, that can create problems. It may not give you the most accurate representation of what you're seeing. For example, uh, in the, um, the study that was um, done by Park and colleagues having to do with epiretinal membranes and macular holes, uh, if a patient developed a complication, and one of the main purposes of their study was to look at returns to the OR and visual acuity, well, if a patient develops a complication and is then, say, referred to a university center, uh there are far fewer percentage of universities that are participating with iris than private practitioners and so you could potentially lose that complication and the reason that i bring this up is that this becomes important because if the iris registry is going to be used to define what is the gold standard for complications say following a particular procedure whether it be cataract surgery or vitrectomy or trabeculectomy this may present a falsely good view of things because it's not capturing the complications that go to the tertiary facilities. And so it may be that an organization like Medicare might set the bar too high and say, well, there's only a 2% complication rate uh, based on the IRIS registry data, but in fact, the complication rate may be higher if you had access to all patients. Uh, in uh, you know who had that particular procedure, so I think we need to be very careful in the way we use the data because the data is useful on one hand, but the data can also be used against us inappropriately because of loss of follow-up and referral to tertiary medical care centers.
0: That's a wonderful point. Uh, that, that, that's that's really really neat. You say and and obviously rightly so that the gold standard in data is is prospective randomized controlled studies but number one the these are very very expensive studies to uh run and n- number two by their by their nature they they take time so there's been uh, some interest in what's called real world evidence so what 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 is real world evidence and and how does it sort of fit into this rubric
1: well i think that Real-world evidence has sort of been misused. Going back to the graduate analysis, uh, analysis like plastics. You know, it's uh, you know, in the graduate they kept saying the future is plastics and the future is plastics. Well, what about plastics? And real-world evidence can be a lot of different things, and it's used a lot in abstracts now, in meetings, and and in publications. But all it really means is that you're using data from the clinical uh, data set of one sort or another. And so I think that we need to be somewhat wary when real-world data is used um, because it means a lot of different things. And some of the real-world data is pretty sloppy and some of the real-world data is pretty good. And the readers need to distinguish between good, high-quality data sets and and data that's kind of a mishmash of, of, of many different sources, and the data may not be uh, particularly clean. And remember that this data in these registry-type studies has not been audited. I mean, nobody is looking at the data that's been transferred uh, to the IRIS registry or to another type of registry thing, and then going back... To the original charts, you know, electronic charts, and saying, well, did this get transferred correctly? You know, what percentage of the data tr- was transferred accurately? And we really don't know that. A- and that sort of data auditing occurs in the multicenter randomized clinical trials, but it doesn't in these things where we're extracting and pulling data from, from different electronic records.
0: Yeah, and then it, it, it's as we say in the computer world, uh, garbage in, garbage out. I'm I'm on both sides of of this topic because the research uh, that I do deals with with modeling some of this 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 data, and I've taken your editorial very much to to hard in terms of the caution that I need to exert with the studies that 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 I do. But of course, most of the 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 listeners are interested in this topic because they're going to encounter papers um, that are derived uh, from uh, um, big data. So let, let me ask you sort of the, the, the bottom line question here. When, when I read an article based upon big data, what are the critical features for which I should look to establish to what extent I can trust the author's findings?
1: I think that's an excellent question, and I think the the first and foremost thing is looking at the quality of the data and where did the data come from. You know, is this data that's been extracted from an EHR system, or has somebody sat in somebody's office and actually looked at the records and and looked at other information on the patients and, and extracted the data or at least did data monitoring? and so i think that people have to look very careful at carefully at where did the data come from and has this data been cleaned up you know what typically happens in the multicenter clinical trials is before they start doing data analysis they send out queries and and clean up the data set, uh, as it were, to try to have, you know, the best follow-up possible. They try really hard to find, you know, patients that, say, are missing follow-up, contacting the patients, what happened to that patient. And those sorts of things don't occur with these big data studies. So I think that looking at where the data came from is critical. And then what percentage of patients are lost to follow-up? Uh, in many of the multi-center clinical trials, the loss to follow-up, depending upon the trial, is maybe five to ten percent in a year, and they're much higher for these registry-type uh, trials because you know patients patients move, they they go you know to see a physician that doesn't participate with that particular registry, and so if you have a loss of follow-up, say of thirty percent, well that definitely contaminates the data because it may be that the 30% of the patients that didn't do so well are the ones that got lost. So it could give you a falsely positive picture of whatever your intervention or disease process is that you're studying. I think another thing that's important is, um, you know, having confounding variables. Um, You know, an example of that is that uh, let's say you have – you're doing a study of, of diabetic uh, retinopathy, and you have some centers that are in inner-city populations of poorly controlled diabetics, and you have other people that are contributing data from uh, patients that are very well controlled in in wealthier suburbs. And depending upon how much you have of each of those two proportions, you could get a false data. You may get a falsely pessimistic view if you have lots of patients from the inner city or a particular. Population or group that are poorly controlled diabetics compared to a study where you have lots of, of well insured, well controlled diabetics. Um, and so you need to look at that and you need to try to compensate for uh, those sorts of differences in baseline characteristics. That type of adjustment for baseline characteristics is often not done. Another area is statistical significance. You know, if you have a, a study of Twenty or 30,000 patients, you can end up with a p-value that's, you know, less than one in 10,000 or one in a million, and that seems very impressive, but remember that if you had a difference in visual acuity uh, between, say, two groups of patients and one group was 20,50 and the other group was 20,50 minus two, and the the statistical significance was extremely high, one in 10,000 or one in 100,000 well, is there really a difference between those two? In other words, is it clinically relevant that you had such a small difference in visual acuity between these two groups of patients? You know, it may be statistically significant, but not clinically relevant. So that's another thing that we have to look at. And then I think that whenever readers read these studies, they need to be careful about whether the authors of the study are overselling their results um, you know I think you always have to be very careful and circumspect about looking at these results and the the authors that write the studies need to be appropriately circumspect and they they need to admit the flaws in the the data source, loss to follow up, potentially making inaccurate conclusions uh, based on the data because of the problems with the data and so i I think that if uh, it sounds too good to be true, it probably is not true.
0: John, this is wonderful stuff. I, I, I want to thank you for, for for spending all of this this, this time and making this really very, very complex topic very clear. Uh, I want to thank you for your generosity. Well, I
1: appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today.
0: John Thompson is assistant professor at the Wilmer Institute of the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. His editorial, When Does Size Matter, Promises, Pitfalls, and Appropriate Interpretation of Big Medical Records Data, appears in the August 2018 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Thompson or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.